0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, there was a postal worker that was sorting through the regular mail when she discovered a letter addressed to God C.O. Heaven. The enclosed letter told about a little lady who had really never asked for anything in her entire life, and she was desperately in need of $100, and the letter indicated that she was wondering if God could send her the money. The postal worker was deeply touched by her request, and so she took up a collection amongst her fellow postal workers, and she managed to collect $75, and she sent it off to the elderly lady. A few weeks later, the elderly lady received the letter and then she sent another letter back to God in care of heaven. So the young postal worker opened the letter and the letter simply read this, thank you God for the money. I deeply appreciate it. However, I only received $75. One of those jerks at the post office must have stolen it. Sometimes we're very selfish and discontented. No matter how much we receive, it seems like we're rarely rarely ever satisfied, rarely ever content. I mean, think about it. We have a lot that's set on making us discontent and the advertising and commercials that abound us daily are set on making us discontent. They expose us to things and Things that we need to do, and unless we have them or do them, we're unhappy. Even with older things, it's always the new and improved version. (laughs) So we feel less than, and we don't feel like we're important unless we have the new and improved. We're made to feel like we're behind the times or not significant unless we have the latest and the greatest. It's very hard to be content in this materialistic world. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's an incredible push for gambling in this country. It promotes and plays upon your desire to have more because we're discontent with what we have. And so it plays to our greed and our desire for more. Discontentment shows up everywhere. It shows up in our consumer debt. We aren't content with what we have, so we go into debt to get what not we want, but what we really sometimes think we need, but it's really just another ploy for what we want. Discontentment is everywhere. It's in the high rate of mobility. Did you know that the average person only lives five years at the same address? We're constantly looking for a better house, a better job, a better place to raise our family, a better place to retire. We're just not content see, in now in the high divorce rate in our country. And if you're divorced, this is not a slam against you. I want you to know that we love you and there are many reasons and we care for you. But that being said, the reason many are getting divorced is simply because their spouse no longer makes them happy anymore. They're no longer content with the person that they call their spouse. And so we divorce. How about you this morning? I mean, do you struggle With contentment, I mean, if you're to really be honest, are you content? Are you content with your finances, your family? Are you content with your looks, with the school that you go to, with the relationships that you're in? Are you content with the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive? Are you content even with your church? Well, if you're discontent, I want you to know you're not alone today. <laughs> so really, the question is, what do we do about this thing called discontentment? How, how do we find contentment? We're going to jump back in the book of Philippians as we've been preaching through the book of Philippians, Paul's Jailhouse Journal of Joy for the Glorious Advancement of the Gospel. And I believe we're going to find this morning three ways to have contentment, three ways to have contentment. I wonder if you stand to your feet again As we read God's holy word from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there's a Bible in the seat pocket there, hopefully around you under the chairs. You can take that as our gift to you today. But if you have a copy of God's word, that's great. Pull it out. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But here's what God's holy word says. Paul says, but I rejoice in the Lord how much, church? Greatly. Greatly I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we want to learn today comes when I lean on the correct person and providence. Confident uh, contentment comes when I lean on the correct person and providence. Verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, but now at last you have revived your concern for me. Paul says he rejoices in the Lord, and that's definitely the correct person, right? Because the Lord is the one who's intervened. Why? Because the Lord is the one that's in control. It's his providence that we can lean on, trust in, and count on. When we lean in on the person and providence of God, contentment is surely going to come our way. Paul knew that he could count on the person of Christ, the the providence of God in all seasons and opportunities of his life. He knew that it's all controlled by a sovereign God. You see, Paul had founded the Philippian church some 12 years before this letter. They had supplied his needs over and over again, but then time had passed and it had been about 10 years before Epaphroditus comes with this gift which this letter tells us about. And when he comes, it's a super happy moment for Paul. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He says his his love, his expression of love that they gave made him rejoice. And he says, this now at last, after so long of a wait, you've revived your concern for me. And that's a beautiful word, that word revived. Paul says, you've revived your concern for me. That's a beautiful, beautiful word. It really is taken from the world of horticulture. It means to bloom again. In other words, Paul says, your your love for me has flowered again. Your your love has bloomed again and it's made my heart like a perennial in season just to bloom again with you. We we rejoice in the Lord for his sovereign care over us. But you didn't have an opportunity to bloom because blooms are seasonal and you just haven't had the season yet. Or Paul says, you have lacked the opportunity. That word opportunity is the word kairos. It means a season, not a particular time. He says, you've never had the time, not chronological time, but an opportunity. You never had the moment when this could happen. Now, we don't know why it's true. We don't know why it took them so long to get back to Paul. We don't know whether it was because of poverty or whether it was the fact that they didn't really know what Paul's needs were or even really where Paul was at. (laughs) But for some reason, they hadn't sent him any support. Well, now 10 years, and he simply says to them, well, that's okay, because I trust the sovereignty of God. You just didn't have an opportunity, but you were concerned for me. He says, you were concerned, and the implication all along is, I know you were concerned for me. I know you care for me. You just didn't have the opportunity to show it in this way. Nevertheless, Paul rejoices greatly. He demonstrates confident, contentment. How? Because Paul has confident contentment and the providence of God needed it. Paul wasn't frustrated. He was content. He says, you just didn't have an opportunity, which means then, here's what we can know about the providence of God. If God doesn't make it happen, it won't happen. But if God wants it to happen, it's surely going to happen. Therefore, we can lean on the person and providence of God for contentment. Do you remember the story about Joseph Joseph was a man with many brothers and he was a man who certainly should have been discontent. He was sold by his own brothers because he was experiencing some favor. (laughs) He was sold by his own brothers by into this band of slave traders who would take him down to be a slave in Pharaoh's court. But Joseph learned deep contentment there by trusting in the person and providence of God, because later when Joseph meets his brothers after an intense famine, which brought them to where he was at, we read in Genesis 50:20 these famous words. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people's lives. You see, he understood that God was behind everything and that he was working out his purposes. Even in the midst of Joseph's problems, he had confident contentment in the person and providence of God. You see, we can learn this contentment by leaning on God and his providence. One pastor said it this way. God is in charge of all the details of the life that we live, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative. He has ordained not only what happens, but when it happens and how it happens and where it happens and what happens before it and what happens after it. You see, if you're struggling with discontentment today, it may be well because you're not trusting God to be God. He's in charge and he's working all things together according to the counsel of his divine will. If you're serious about becoming content, you really have to truly trust God's word. Proverbs 16:9 says these words. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16:33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Psalm 145, 16 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Friends, as bad as things get, as disappointed as you may be, let's not question the truth that our God is in control. I mean, don't forget that the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden involved Satan throwing seeds of discontentment on Eve's heart. And once she doubted in the providence and person and the goodness of God, it was a short slip down the slippery slope into sin. Maybe here this morning experiencing discontentment, not just because you may not trust God, but because you're looking for someone other than God to provide contentment. Proverbs 1923 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. You see, confident contentment comes when I lean on the correct person and providence. But secondly, we learn today that confident contentment comes when I learn through changing problems and prosperity. Confident contentment comes when I learn through changing problems and prosperity. Verse 11, he says, hey, I don't speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know what it's like to be humble, means, and and how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul tells us that contentment, listen to me, is something that has to be learned. That ought to give you hope today. If you're not there yet, you're not beyond all hope. You can learn to be content. It's how did Paul learn it? Paul says, I learned it through the changing problems that I faced and through the changing prosperity that I've experienced. Paul says, in whatever circumstance I was in, I was learning how to be content. Paul's declaration of contentment was meant to grip the Philippians' attention because the word he used came straight out of their stoic pagan philosophy. Gordon Fee remarks that on the surface his explanation looks like a meteor falling from the Stoic sky into his epistle. The Stoics regarded contentment as the essence of all virtues. For them, contentment described the mindset of the person who become independent of all things and all people. The Stoic line was man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. The Stoic Seneca put it this way, he said, the happy man is content with his present lot no matter what it is and is reconciled to his circumstances. The Stoic ideal is a kind of self-contained Superman who could rise above it all independent and self-sufficient. Paul transforms this term into a powerfully Christ-centered redefinition of contentment. Paul and all who are in Christ are savior sufficient as opposed to being self-sufficient. Contentment is rooted in the eternal God rather than temporal self. That's why Paul and Seneca may appear to be close. They're a universe apart. Paul is sufficient and content not because he is independent, but because he's totally dependent upon God and the people of God. The Christ, Paul had learned a couple of things and that is for us today that I can learn contentment when I have little. I can learn contentment when I have little. Paul says, I have learned. The emphatic there is I. Even I have learned. It points to the fact that the lesson is in the bag. In other words, Paul says, I've got this one down because I have learned through the problems and prosperity. I know what it's like to be content. I know what it's like to be satisfied. I know what it's like to be self-sufficient in Christ wherever I am. The word content is the same word found in 2 Corinthians eight. 9.8 Nine eight translated sufficiency. Paul says, I'm sufficient. I'm self-contained. I have no needs that aren't met by my God. But he's not denying difficulty. He's not denying hard circumstances. He's simply content in God's providential care for what very little he had experienced in his life. He talks of being of humble means, of being hungry, and of suffering need. You see, Paul had been there because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, it says, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our hands. And when we revile, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. And when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. It sounds like Paul knew what he was talking about. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5 say this, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, and afflictions, and hardships, and distresses, and beatings, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. And Paul goes on to tell us in Second Corinthians eleven twenty-four through twenty-seven about some other things. He said five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on the frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You see, Paul had learned to be content when he had a little. But how could he do that? Because he had learned to lean on the correct person in providence. The changing problems of life when he had a little. But then Paul also learned contentment when he had a lot. You see, I can learn contentment when I have a lot. Because Paul says, I've learned uh, to, to be content when I have a lot. He talks about being prosper- a prospered or being filled or having Abundance. We see this even in this letter. If you'll look just a few verses down in Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul says, But I received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Over and over and over again, he was blessed, but then Paul tells us about one incredible blessing, one incredible prosperous event in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know, or out of the body I do not know, but God knows such a man, was caught up in the third heaven. (laughs) And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Talk about being prospered. <laughs> Paul got a glimpse of heaven, amen. Paul says that I've learned to be content through the things that I struggle with, through the problems and prosperity. You see, when we have little, well, there's a temptation there, isn't there? We can become prideful and greedy and unwilling to share even with the small things that we have. We can begin driven to get more and more things because we don't have anything. The temptation when we have little is to steal, it's to to lie, it's to cheat, it's to to distort, it's to become envious or greedy of what others have and and to, to blame them for what they have or wish that they didn't have what they have or speak evil of them because they have or judge the motives of those who have what we don't have. There's also a danger when we have a lot. When we we have more than what we need, we can become unwilling to share even all the more. Let me ask you today, is it easier to carry a cup that is half full or one that is completely full? It's always, in my opinion, a little harder to learn contentment when we have more than we should than when we don't. Paul says, I've learned to be content through the changing problems and prosperity. He says, I can get along with poverty. I can be content with problems. I can get along with prosperity. In any and every circumstance, Paul said, I've learned the secret. That's what he said there. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Well, what's the secret, Paul? (laughs) That word secret is from the vocabulary of false religions, where it originally referred to the induction into a mystery cult. We still have some of those that go on today. The idea here is that the mystery remains for those on the outside of Christ and can only be learned by those who are in Christ. It was something that Paul had learned, and it came as a result of his own spiritual growth and sanctification. Paul says, I've learned a secret of being filled. That word being filled was used of foddering animals, of feeding or fattening animals. It's like he says, hey, I know what it's like to have a big meal. I mean, to eat well, to be well-fed, to be fat, if you will. And I also know what it's like to go hungry. At times of great deprivation, at times when he didn't have enough food to eat, he knew that, he experienced that. And then he closes by, in verse 12 by saying, and I know what it's like to be in Abundance. What's the point in everything with problems or with prosperity? I can learn contentment because I live independent from my circumstances and I learn through them. Contentment can be learned. It's a process of walking with Christ day by day, trusting in his providence and his person. Circumstances change constantly, but God never does, friends. What are some things, though, that we could take away from this about these practicalities Well, first of all, we can be satisfied with our salary. We Learn in Luke chapter 3, 14, the Bible says some incredible words. It says that some soldiers were questioning John and saying, well, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, but be content with your wages. We can be satisfied and content with what we make. It doesn't mean that we don't better ourselves to make more. We have to make sure that we're content and we're just never going to be satisfied no matter how much people pay us. Also, be thankful for the basics of life. 1 Timothy 6.8 says this, 1 Timothy 6.8, if we have food and covering, but with these we shall be content. If I have the basics in life, man, I can learn contentment. Another thing is, is want what you have, even if you don't have everything you want. Want what you have, even if you don't have everything you want. Let me say it differently. The key to contentment is not having everything you want, but wanting everything you already have. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, keep, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. And then lastly, can I tell you this, to just grow in godliness. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says these amazing words, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We should be content with our God-given circumstances, but listen, church, but never satisfied with where we are Spiritually. But unfortunately, our tendency is to do just the opposite. Many of us are content with where we're at spiritually, but very discontented with where we are with our circumstances. Are you ready to settle for far less if it means experiencing greater spiritual growth? How do we do this? Again, what is the secret Paul is referring to? Paul says, I think we could state the secret this way. God has so ordered the world and your personal circumstances that no matter what situation you're in right now, you have everything you truly need to be content. You might have plenty today and tomorrow and be in poverty tomorrow or the next day, but you can abound today or go with poverty tomorrow. Why? Because God is in control. Here's something that I read this week that's really been a blessing to my heart the more I've meditated on this. F.B. Meyer said this when, when he was referring to why the Lord may allow you to be in poverty or to go without and to be a little discontented. He said this, God has a reason, though he might not tell it to you. And you may not know that reason, but that reason satisfies him. And therefore, because it satisfies God, I can be satisfied in God. You see, the reasons you and I may suffer and go through the things that we go through, God has a reason, and that reason satisfies him. Therefore, that's why I can be satisfied, because I know he cares for me. Someone tells of a king who was discontented, and in fact, he was so anxious he couldn't sleep, eat, rest, or even think. So the king called his wise men and asked them what he could do. And one very old wise man said this. He said, king, find a man in your kingdom who is content. And then wear his shirt for a day and a night and you will be content. Well, that sounded like a good idea to the king. So he ordered some of his servants to search for such a person. And days blended into weeks before his servants returned. Well, they came back and the king said, well, did you find a contented man? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. His servants replied. Well, then where is his shirt that I may wear it? Well, your majesty, he doesn't have one. Can I just tell you that contentment's not what about what you have, what you don't have. It's a process of being, learning to trust God, his person, and his providence, and prosperity and in problems. And lastly, very quickly, confident contentment comes when I live in constant power and promise. Coming contentment comes when I live in constant power and promise. So Philippians 4.13, let's just quote one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's just rip that completely out of its context. And let's just put that on a shirt of an athlete at the Olympics. I can win the gold medal through Christ who strengthens me. Don't treat Paul like that. The MMA fighter who has that tattooed across his chest. I can do all things through Christ. Certainly I can beat this opponent. I can score a touchdown through Christ. I can can win a gold medal. I can become a millionaire. Contextually, this means something far different. As one commentator says, now he doesn't mean, and I want you to listen carefully, Paul is not saying that I can go forever without eating. Paul says, I can't go forever without drinking. I can't go forever without sleeping. I can't go on to continue to be beat like I've been beat and still survive. He doesn't mean that. He knows that if he doesn't have food, he'll die. If he doesn't have something to drink, he'll die. If he's continually pummeled, he's gonna die. There's a limit to the physical extremities which he and you and I can endure. But what he is saying is that when I've come to the end of my own resources, it's then I experience the power of Christ to sustain me until such provision is made. He uses a Greek verb that means to be strong or to have strength. He's saying, I am strong enough to go through anything because of Christ who gives me strength. Again, he's talking about coming to the bottom as it were of human resources and finding there the strength of Christ. In the Greek, he says, I can do all things. And that's emphatic. In other words, in the Greek, it came first. So when the Greeks want to emphasize something, they put it first so it can literally be said, all things I have the power to endure through Christ. So then what does this mean? If it's not just something I can just say, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I get into a bad thing and, or maybe I've got something going on. I can do all things. No, that's not what it means. What does it mean? Well, context is always keen. It's interesting that verse 13 comes after verses 10, 11, and 12. Imagine that. What is the context? Paul is saying the context is, is I can be content with little or with a lot in Christ. It's talking about contentment. I can be content because of the strength of Christ in me. No matter if I am in poverty, no matter if I have a lot, I, because Christ in me is my condemnment, It's his strength in me. He's saying, look, I have the strength to go through all things, all deprivations, all difficulties. At times of prosperity, I have the ability to deal with anything that may tempt me away from Christ. That's what he's saying. I can go without food. I can go without clothes. I can go without comfort, without warmth. I can go without freedom. I can go without care. I can endure pain. I can endure danger and persecution. I can endure suffering. I can endure threat. I can endure all that on the outside because of him who strengthens me on the inside. You see, when you get to the point where you're the end of your resources and you're dependent upon the Lord, you will see the movement of his power and therein you will be content. The same truth is stated negatively by Jesus in John fifteen five, when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no trouble or problem or difficulty that cannot be overcome by the sustaining power of Christ. This verse does not promise that you can do anything you want. It's promising that you can do everything that God wants you to do. Can I just challenge you this morning? Just just write this down and take this to the bank and be a Berean and check this out. If, if God's word doesn't bear me out on this, but God will never call you to do something that you can do. God will always and only call you to do things which you cannot do without him. Paul is saying that in whatever circumstances I find myself, in whatever extremes, experiencing abundance or poverty, or struggling to proclaim the gospel to people who don't want to hear, or to endure the wrath of the establishment, or bringing peace to the church, or languishing in prison, I can be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One well, could be content and confident in every circumstance, but he could be sure that he'd be equipped with divine power to deal with it when it comes. Again, this doesn't mean that you can do everything you want to do. It means that you can do everything that God calls you to or allows you to go through. There's a great account in 2 Samuel about the grandson of King Saul. His name was Mephibosheth. He was crippled. kill being killed by David. Parentheses, you got to know the common practice was to kill anyone in the former king's family who might be considered a rival to your current throne. So kings would go in and just kill everybody from the past family. But he didn't kill Mephibosheth. He invited him to eat at his table. <laughs> and he was given the lands that belonged to his, his grandfather. And when David's son Absalom led a coup to, to attempt to take over the throne, David had to go into exile. Mephibosheth, saw his grandson stayed in Jerusalem and Ziba, the manor of Mephibosheth's household, came to David with supplies and gifts and played up to the king. And Ziba said that Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem because he believed he'd be uh, be given the kingship of his grandfather, Saul. Now, I don't know why Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem, but it's likely he thought that because of his disability, he might slow David down. But David, hearing the words of Ziba, was angry. He thought Mephibosheth's attitude was an act of treason and told Ziba that everything that belonged to Mephibosheth would now belong to him. And when the coup finally ended and David returns to Jerusalem, we read these words in 2 Samuel 19. It says this. It says, then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he neither cared for his feet nor trimmed his mustache nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he answered, O oh Lord, O oh Lord the King, my servant, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will settle a donkey for myself that I might ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my Lord the King. But my Lord the King is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, why do you still speak of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him, who, let him even take it all. Just let him have it all since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. You know what Mephibosheth Mephibosheth is really saying? He's saying, I've been slandered. But rather than be bitter and live discontented, I don't care about all that. The only thing I really care about is that you've come home. He understood that the greatest treasure that he had was a relationship with the king. That's all that mattered to Mephibosheth, that he could sit and eat at the king's table. It sounds like the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26, that says this. Whom I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, it really seems that contentment begins to grow when we come to understand that our greatest treasure is our relationship with Jesus. Discontentment comes when we feel like we've been deprived, but truly, you and I have been deprived of nothing but hell. And we understand that and we choose Christ, then we'll be able to say with Mishibbusheth, nothing else matters but having you as the king of my life and eating at your table. You see, contentment comes when I live in the power of Christ and the promise that I can do all he's asked me to do. Legend has it, and this is legend has it, that a wealthy merchant during Paul's day had heard about the apostle and had become so fascinated with Paul that he decided to visit him. So when he was passing through Rome, he got in touch with Timothy and arranged an interview with Paul the prisoner. And stepping inside his cell, the merchant was surprised to find the apostle looking rather old and physically frail, but he felt at once the strength of this man, the serenity, the magnetism of this man who relied upon Christ as his all in all. And these men talked for some time, and finally the merchant left, and outside the cell, he asked Timothy, he said, "What is the secret of this man's power? I've never seen anything like it before." Timothy says to this man, can't you guess? Paul is in love. The merchant said, in love? Yes, Timothy said. Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. The merchant said, is that it? Is that all? Timothy said, that is everything. See, that's the key to contentment, my friends. It's being loved by and in love with Jesus Christ. Jimmy, I wonder if you and your team would come. But confident contentment comes when I lean on the correct person in providence. Contentment comes when I learn through changing problems and prosperity. Contentment comes when I live in constant power and promise. I read this story this week about a Persian, an ancient Persian His name was Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed owned a very large farm that had orchards and grain fields and gardens, and Ali was a very wealthy and content man. One day, Ali entertained a guest who told him all about diamonds and how wealthy he would be if he owned a diamond mine. So Ali Hafed went to bed that night, a very poor man, because he went to bed discontent. Craving a mine of diamonds, he sold his farm to search for these rare stones. He traveled the world over, finally becoming so poor, so broken, and so defeated that he committed suicide. One day, the man who purchased Ali Hafed's farm led his camel into the garden to drink. And as his camel put his nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. And he pulled out a diamond that reflected all the hues of the rainbow. This man had discovered right in Ali Hafeb's farm, the mine of Golconda. It is the most magnificent diamond mine in all of history. You see, had Ali Hafeb remained at home and dug in his own garden, he would have had acres of diamonds and remained content instead of experiencing death by discontentment. And can I tell you today, beloved, that we have all we need to be content with the jewel of Jesus If we belong to him, we don't have to go looking elsewhere for contentment. We don't have to believe the lies that there's contentment to be found in anyone other than Jesus. We can lean on his providence and know that he'll provide what we need when we need it. We can learn through the changing times of prosperity and problems that he's steady and strong. And we can live in the strength knowing that he will supply all that we need to do all that he's asked. But you see, this morning, you may not know this Christ. Reminds me of the devout Quaker was watching his new neighbor move in next door. And all kinds of modern appliances, electronical gadgets, plus furniture and costly wall hangings had been carried in. And so the devout Quaker yells across the fence to his neighbor. If you ever lack anything, let me know and I'll show you how to live without it. you want to be content today beloved can I just ask you to come and allow me and some others who may be here to show you how to live without anything but Christ we don't need anything but Jesus do you want to know Jesus do you want to be content leaving today knowing that your sins are forgiven that you could have a home in heaven that you could know God personally as your Father, that you could be content in this life because you have the very source of contentment, which is Christ. I'm gonna pray a prayer and then we're gonna to stand to our feet and sing and those who may be the Spirit of God, may be working in their hearts, maybe you could come and pray with us. So would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for your precious word. Just reminded that Lord, all the way my Savior leads. Lord, we can do all things through Christ. Pray for that one today who may be discontented that today they have found the joy of contentment in Christ again, refreshed and renewed, and that that one maybe today who is without you would find all that he's looking for in Jesus. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen, would you stand with us?